For status, I am Malihe Razazan. You have the central government with various military and security structures. You have what's left of the Iraqi army. You have the Iraqi special forces or called counterterrorism service. You have also the federal police, which is doing a lot of fighting, particularly in the western part of the city, in the fighting that's going on right now. You had also a whole range of Shiite militias who were formed immediately after the fall of Mosul in the summer 2014. On this edition of Status, we speak with researcher Lolowa al-Rashid about the ongoing military operation in Mosul and its grave consequences for the civilians of the embattled city. Iraqi forces began their assault on ISIS-held Mosul in October of last year, after months of preparation and build-up. In January of this year, the eastern part of the city was, quote, liberated from the so-called Islamic State, and since then there have been large-scale military operations in an attempt to retake the city's western half. This is the narrative widely repeated by the governments of the United States, Iraq, and their allies. But the realities on the ground tell a different story. On March 17th, in one of the deadliest bombing raids for civilians since the U.S. invasion of Iraq, a U.S. airstrike killed nearly 300 civilians in Mosul. In a recent article titled, What the War on Terror Looks Like, authors Lulowa al-Rashid and Peter Harling write, quote, The gap could not be greater between the war on the Islamic State as it is narrated on the one side and how it is experienced by ordinary people trapped in the crossfire on the other. The reality is one where the most vulnerable Iraqis have almost no one to count on and virtually everyone to fear, end of quote. So how is the so-called war on terror experienced by the civilians in Mosul? Shahram Aghamir spoke with Lolowa al-Rashid, a researcher based in Paris. Lolowa al-Rashid has been conducting research on Iraq and the Gulf region for the past 20 years. Shahram Aghamir spoke with her about the significance of the city of Mosul and the ongoing campaign to recapture the city from Daesh. I was only there for uh, three weeks. I was in Kurdistan, in the part of Mosul which had been liberated at the end of uh, 2016. So I was initially going to look at the plight of the Yazidi, and I was doing this for uh, the French Fédération Internationale des Droits de l'Homme, which is a human rights organization. And then I moved on to Mosul and to the fighting, which is still raging in this area, even in the supposedly liberated part of the city, still broad insecurity. People haven't returned to their homes. So the situation is very, very difficult for the civilians. Why don't we start talking about Mosul? Iraqi forces began the assault on ISIS held Mosul in October after months of right. preparation and buildup. In January, right. Iraq quote-unquote, liberated... The eastern part of the city, yes. and then so now what is, they are fighting in the western part of the city. Right. Which is what, the historic heart of Mosul. Tell us what is the significance of the city of Mosul and the ongoing campaign to recapture the city from the Daesh or ISIS militants. 
Well, Musa, first of all, is the second most populated city in Iraq. We can discuss whether it's the second or the third, as we don't know the exact size of the population. Maybe Basra in the southern part of Iraq is more populated than Mosul. But the fact uh, remains that Mosul is a large city. It's uh, highly populated. It's very urban. And it has a historic and symbolic importance for the Sunnis of Iraq. It has always been the heartland of Sunnism, the heartland of Arabism. And on top of that, Mosul has a very old military tradition. The city of Mosul has produced a lot of military. It is said that Mosul has more than one million soldiers. A lot of them were among the pioneers of the Iraqi army back in the 1920s, 1930s. So Mosul is very, very important in the history of contemporary Iraq. And what's the significance of this ongoing battle right now? How does that play out in terms of struggle for the heart of Iraq as a unified nation? It is important for both the Iraqi central government and the so-called international coalition against terrorism because it was in Mosul that the caliphate was declared in June 2014 by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and gradually Mosul became one of the most strong capital of ISIS. The caliphate or ISIS relied on, as I said, the thousands of military people in Mosul, all those who were banned from public life, who suffered from the dismantlement of the Iraqi army in 2003 when the Americans invaded the country. So there was a lot of resentment against the central government in the city of Mosul. And this helped ISIS to establish itself in Mosul and to give the feeling to the population of Mosul that there was a state and a strong administration in the making. So it is very important to liberate Mosul for the central government. It is important for them because it has to do with the unity of Iraq, with keeping Iraq, Arab Iraq, of course, because, you know, Kurdistan has been already granted a federal status. But it is very important to keep Mosul into a unitary Iraq that is under the control of Baghdad. So let's move on to your article titled What the War on Terror Looks Like. It's yes. a fascinating article. I have to congratulate you for writing that. Thank you. Uh, you challenged the narrative pushed by what you call the various anti-Daesh ISIS protagonists. Talk about this narrative and why you find it so simplistic and problematic. Well, since 2014, since the city of Mosul fell into the hands of ISIS, there has been a narrative of strong international commitment to liberate the territory that fell under the control of ISIS. There has been a narrative of liberation, of constant fighting against the terrorists, against the infrastructure of ISIS. This narrative was very consensual. Paradoxically, it united lots of protagonists, as you said, ranging from the international coalition, more than 60 countries participating in the air campaign against all the territories under the control of ISIS. Of course, you have the central government with various military and security structures. You have what's left of the Iraqi army. You have the Iraqi special forces or called counterterrorism service. You had also the federal police, which is doing a lot of fighting, particularly in the western part of the city, in the fightings that's going on right now. You had also a whole range of Shiite militias 
school were formed immediately after the fall of Mosul in the summer 2014. They were formed after Ayatollah Sistani, the highest Shiite authority, clerical authority in Iraq, called on Iraqis to join the security forces to fight against Daesh. This was done in a, through a fatwa, fatwa of counter-jihad to expel ISIS, to stop ISIS from expanding in Iraq and to liberate all the lands which fell under its control. And of course, you have regional actors who are keen on participating in this fight against ISIS, mainly Turkey, which has always claimed some influence in northern Iraq, because this part of Iraq, Mosul, the governors of Mosul or Ninawa, as it is called, was a former Ottoman province. And until this day, People in Mosul look more at Turkey than they look at Baghdad for economic exchanges, cultural uh, interactions. So they are very much integrated with a territory that is oriented towards Turkey and also towards Syria. So basically it was coherent that ISIS had two capitals, one in Raqqa, Deir Zor, and one in Mosul, because this was, before 2014, a sort of integrated regionally, economically, culturally, socially territory. You had families in Mosul with ties with families in Raqqa and Deir Zor. You had lots of trade relations with Aleppo and, of course, with merchants in southeast of Turkey. This is the situation. You have a lot of different military actors who are fighting against ISIS. It doesn't mean that those actors have a clear vision or the same interests in the aftermath of the liberation. And I do expect growing tensions between them and some kind of fighting over the spoils of the war. We'll come back and talk about these non-state actors and their role, a control and a future role, as you mentioned. One thing that stands out in this battle and this war in Mosul is that in previous battles for Fallujah and Ramadi, those cities were entirely emptied of their civilian population as Iraqi forces battled ISIS, Daesh. In Mosul, the Iraqi government said it had asked civilians to remain in their homes to prevent large-scale displacement. When the operation to retake Mosul was launched, more than a million people were estimated to still be living in Mosul. Today, it's estimated that still there are around 400,000 people trapped in the city. What have been the ramifications of such approach and what is the plight of the civilians there? Well, it's true that when the campaign to liberate Mosul was launched last October by the Iraqi government, civilians in Mosul were explicitly told to remain in the city, to remain in Mosul. They were promised that the fighting will focus on not inflicting civilian damage or destroy the infrastructure the same way it was done in Ramadi and partially in Fallujah. They were told to remain in Mosul simply because the Iraqi central government and the international actors, mostly the UN and its multiple agencies in Iraq, didn't have the capacity to manage the influx of refugees, of people flying the fight. So they were told to remain, and this was completely irresponsible behavior on the part of the Iraqi government and its foreign international interlocutors. The Iraqi government doesn't have the capacity, the technical capacity, nor the financial means to deal with such a huge influx of refugees. Almost half of the city, half of the inhabitants of the governorate of Mosul have fled. Particularly, they are fleeing towards the south of Mosul. In this area, nothing was done in terms of refugee camps, in terms of infrastructure. Nothing was done by the Iraqi central government. 
This behavior, I don't know whether it was deliberate on the part of the central government or just simply because they didn't have the means to do otherwise. But of course, there was an international pressure on the central government to accelerate the launch of the liberation of Mosul, of the battle to liberate Mosul. And I think because of this external pressure on the central government, things were rushed without taking into account the plight of the civilians. Their situation is very dire. I mean, they suffered from the weather. It was very cold until a couple of weeks in Mosul. They suffered from heavy rain. They just left their homes without their belongings. And now they are left in precarious refugees camps. Some of them lack the most basic sanitary infrastructure to host them, and they don't know when they can return to their homes. They don't know how long the situation will last. And if we compare with the plight of the Yazidis, their regions were liberated about two years ago from ISIS, and they are until this day living in several refugee camps in the governorate of Duhok, which is in the, the western part of Kurdistan. And why is that? Why aren't Yazidis back? I mean, most of the Yazidis who fled came from Sinjar Mountains. And in this area, lots of fighting is still going on. ISIS is still controlling parts of the mountain. But the real problem stems from the rivalry between the KDP or the party which is headed by Masoud Barzani. This is, uh, the this is Kurdish Democratic Party and PKK is Kurdistan Workers Party. That is fighting for Kurdish rights inside Turkey. Their weight is mainly in Syria, and they have been doing a lot of the fighting against Daesh in Syria. And although they are classified as a terrorist organization by the U.S. and by some other Western countries, they have become an asset for the coalition against Daesh. And they will probably play a very important role in the forthcoming battle to liberate Raqqa. So how is this tension between PKK and KDP which is a more conservative grouping as opposed to PKK, which has leftist tendencies. How is that playing out and how does that impact on the fate of Yazidis and the fact that they're unable to go back to their homes? The Yazidi population resented very much the fact that the KDP, Peshmerga, didn't really protect them from ISIS. When ISIS entered Sinjar, all of the Peshmergas who were posted there just simply left. They didn't fight. They didn't protect the Yazidis, although the official narrative in Kurdistan is that the Yazidis are Kurds. They are, of course, ethnically Kurds. They speak Kurdish, but they are not Muslims. The Yazidis felt betrayed, and the only ones who stood with them and who partially protected them from ISIS were PKK fighters. So this has changed the situation. A lot of the Yazidis now lean towards the PKK and are quite hostile to the KDP. The KDP, because it's pressured by Turkey, because of the close links between Masoud Barzani and the Turkish government, they are pressured to reconquer Sinjar and to expel PKK fighters. And of course, PKK fighters are absolutely not willing to withdraw from these regions where they have already established military camps and headquarters. And to add to this, just to be clear, Kurdish Democratic Party has forged uh, some sort of an alliance of expediency with the Turkish government, which is actually in a war with PKK. Absolutely. What makes things worse is that you have some kind of regional rivalry that's going on in this mountainous area. This is a very strategic area because it's just physical separation between Syria and Iraq. It's a very strategic territory. 
Now you have Shiite militias who are rushing to control this area as well and who are providing support to the PKK against the KDP. And of course, behind them, you have Iran. Iran is keen on having an access to the Syrian territories through this area. All of these regional rivalries, power gains between Turkey and Iran and their proxies is making the Yazidi situation more and more difficult, more and more complicated. Already the armed clashes that erupted between the PKK and the KDP has left a dozen of victims on both sides. So I expect tensions to remain very high in this region. And Iran and Turkey, to be sure, by no means they are for expanding the Kurdish rights or their rule over their territory. They are just playing the cynical games and forging these alliances of expediency. If anything, the recent event, when the semi-autonomous Kurdish-dominated provincial council in the city of Kirkuk decided that they wanted to raise the Kurdish flag next to the Iraqi flag over the city's official institutions, Iranian foreign ministry spokesman described the practice of raising that Kurdish flag as contrary to Iraqi constitution and illegal, and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan called on Iraqi Kurds to lower the Kurdish flag. So by no means are any of these states, either one of these states, have a pro-Kurdish stance in terms of expanding the rights of the Kurds. What happened since summer 2014 is that the KRG, the Kurdish regional government, expanded its territory under the guise of fighting ISIS or stopping ISIS from expanding. So what happened is that the territory, which was initially unconstitutionally granted to the KRG, to the Kurdish regional government, was increased by almost 40%. The frontier between Arab Iraq and Kurdish Iraq was pushed back by the Peshmerga. They controlled almost all of the dispute, what is named in the Iraqi constitution as the disputed internal boundaries. Those were mixed population territories. You had Arabs, you had Kurds, you had, of course, Turkmen and Christians and other small minorities. These territories were initially supposed to hold a referendum to determine whether they will belong to the central government or to the Kurdish regional government. Of course, since 2005, when the Iraqi constitution was adopted, no referendum was conducted. There was not even a census to see what's the share of each component in those territories. Immediately after the fall of Mosul, Kurdish Peshmerga rushed to Kirkuk, and they controlled most of the governorate of Kirkuk. As you know, Kirkuk is an oil-rich governorate in Iraq, and this is what is at stake, in addition to other considerations relating to um, the presence of the Turkmen population in Kirkuk. And historically, Turkmen have always played a very important cultural, economic, and political role in the governorate of Kirkuk. And they have linguistic ties to Turkey. Historically, Kirkuk was part of the Mosul province, the Ottoman Mosul province. Surely enough, the Turkmen and the Assyrians and the Arabs in the city of Kirkuk, they actually protested this action by the Kurdish-dominated provincial council to raise the Kurdish flag next to the Iraqi flag. Just one um, footnote on this flag crisis. It doesn't make any difference because de facto, the governorate of Kirkuk was under the control of the Peshmerga. So raising the flag is basically just some kind of escalation with Baghdad, but it doesn't change anything on the ground. A couple of weeks ago, the Peshmerga, who belonged to the other big Kurdish party, the PUK, they blocked the flow of oil in the city of Kirkuk, and they asked more funds from the government in Baghdad, and they wanted the oil infrastructure to be developed in the governorate. 
all the protagonists of the war against ISIS are trying, as I said, to claim the spoils of the war. They want their share of the victory. And by share of the victory, it's not only about territory, it's also about economic resources. Most of the disputed internal boundaries in addition to Kirkuk, are agricultural regions, and this is why they are disputed as well. We need to talk about the United States' role in this conflict right now. The U.S. military was behind an airstrike on March 17th that hit western Mosul neighborhood and reportedly killed more than 150 civilians. Amnesty International has stated that indiscriminate attacks violate international humanitarian law and can constitute war crimes. What can you tell us about the military tactics and their consequences in this current conflict over Mosul? When it comes to the Americans, the rules of engagement have been slightly modified under the new administration, under the Trump administration. Strengthening and intensification of the air campaign, more and more bombing was conducted in Mosul. Everybody wants this fight to end quickly. So therefore, the air bombing was intensified, and the result basically is more and more civilians being killed in Mosul. And at the same time, the Iraqi federal police and other Iraqi forces have been heavily shelling the western part of Mosul. They all want this to end quickly. So the civilians are paying the price of this. And the problem is that the Iraqi government or Iraqi military forces, they blame it on the Americans. Americans blame it on the Iraqis who supposedly have been providing intelligence to the fighters of ISIS. But of course, ISIS fighters are embedded with the civilians. So this makes it a very costly war for the civilians. And probably some of the bombings that we have seen over the last three weeks could amount to war crimes against the civilians. On a related question, what is your assessment of the relations between the Trump administration and the government of Prime Minister Abadi in Iraq? We know that the Obama administration made sure to shore up Mr. Abadi's faltering leadership. There is even this argument that Mr. Abadi relaunched the assault to recapture Mosul, ensuring that there would be adequate time for Ms. Clinton to capitalize on it and explicitly stressing that by the time she becomes president of the United States, ISIS would have been driven out of Iraq. What is your take on the relations between the two administrations? The Iraqi government welcomed the arrival of the Trump administration and they were hoping that there will be a change in the American policy towards Iraq. They were expecting the new president to be more supportive and particularly to increase the military engagement of the Americans in Iraq. So basically you have some sort of continuity with what the previous administration has done. And at the same time, the rules of engagement have changed and the military presence, the American military presence has been expanded. You have more troops today on the ground, more American special forces that are fighting along the Iraqi special forces. You have more air bombings and you have now more or less permanent American uh, military bases inside Iraq. And this is a complete reversal from what we have seen since 2011, when the American withdrew most of their troops in Iraq. So you can tell that there's more involvement of the U.S. into Iraqi politics, into the Iraqi security system. And the issue of economic reconstruction of Sunni regions that suffered heavy destruction from the war. So we have seen that while Prime Minister Abadi visited President Trump recently. Some contracts were signed. And what was striking to me is that the uh, Iraqi government signed a contract with 
unnamed American security companies to secure the road between Baghdad and the Jordanian frontier, as well as the highway between Basra and Baghdad. So there's as well, at the same time, some sort of return of the private security companies to Iraq. And maybe we will see in the months to come a greater reliance on those companies, maybe to counter the militia, the Shiite militia, which have gained huge importance in Iraq over the last two, three years. Mr. Trump's son-in-law, Mr. Kushner, just visited Iraq also. We don't exactly know what the contours of this new American involvement in Iraq will be, but surely there's a greater interest for Iraq on the part of the new administration. I think there was some kind of fatigue, I mean, towards Iraq under the previous administration. They were very reluctant to be involved more heavily in Iraqi politics. And there was, under the previous administration, I would say some kind of sort of implicit agreement with Iran, some kind of dual protectorate on Iraq. They were both Iran and the U.S. under Obama's administration. They were very keen on keeping this political process, the so-called political process in Baghdad, in the green zone. They were keen on keeping some sort of status quo, whereby you don't have a really functional political system or political entity that is sovereign, that has a monopoly over violence. But at the same time, you have this fiction of some kind of political process going on with the parliament, with the periodic elections. So they were keen on keeping this status quo. We don't know whether the new American administration will change this. I mean, rhetorically, they have been threatening Iran. They have been uh, criticizing Iranian influence in Iraq. We don't know whether they would take the steps, the concrete steps to reverse this influence or whether it's just a rhetoric posture. We don't know yet. But surely this is something that must have been discussed between President Trump's envoys to Baghdad a couple of days ago. You did mention the militias in Iraq. In your article, you argue that these paramilitary formations and uh, tribal armed groups are the order of the day, at least in some parts of Iraq. And you seem to believe that this arrangement cuts across different ethnicities and religious sects. You have all sorts of armed groups, armed militias that are fighting against Daesh. But at the same time, they are totally uncoordinated, uncooperative among them. And sometimes they are just rivals. I mean, the Iraqi army collapsed and has lost its credibility when Mosul fell into the hands of Daesh. So the only effective and capable Iraqi armed force is the counter-terrorism service. They number maybe 10 to 12 or 13,000 fighters. They have suffered heavy casualties since the beginning of the campaign to liberate Mosul. They are uh, completely exhausted by the fight. So therefore, the central government had no other choice but to rely on all sorts of irregular forces. You, of course, have more than 100,000 Shiite fighters that are grouped under what's called the popular mobilization unit, the Hashd al-Shabi. But you also have the proxies of the Shiite militias, and that is a series of um, tribal Sunni forces. This is the way they control the liberated areas such as Ramadi, government of Ambar, or Salahuddin, and the city of Takrit. The militias work closely with co-opted Sunnis, Sunni tribal fighters. Actually, it's some kind of new sahwa. If you recall in General Petra's strategy to uh, eradicate Al-Qaeda back in 2007, they relied on tribal fighters. So the Hashd al-Shabi has also its own sahwa, i.e. tribal Sunni fighters that are being incorporated into their unit. They are on their payroll. 
and they are the local groups on which the central government rely on them to control the territory that has been liberated. And in the eastern part of Mosul, these Sunni tribal fighters are creating a very uh, chaotic situation and threatening civilians. They are looting homes. They are more obsessed with looting than fighting Daesh. And they are just interested by material gains rather than holding the territory and protecting the civilians. And these militias and paramilitary groups have really, as you mentioned, filled the gap left by the decline of the state. And often they have significant popular legitimacy. These are non-state actors that sometimes they have their own media, schools, hospitals or medical centers and sermons. And in Iraq, some of these militias even hold ministerial posts and dominate key ministries. You're absolutely right. For instance, one of the strongest Shiite militias that is the Badr organization, headed by Hadi al-Amiri, has been controlling several ministries in the government. They control a very sensitive and important ministry that is the transportation ministry. They also control the youth and sports ministry. They rely on the state resources. So you, you have a very weird relationship between regular forces and irregular forces between militias and the government. It's a very paradoxical situation. You can't draw a separate line between militias and the central government. Since some of the militias and their leaders are incorporated into um, the state apparatus and benefit from state resources, actually uh, popular mobilization units are on the payroll of the prime minister, of the budget of the prime minister. Their annual budget has reached more than one5 billion dollars a year. It has become a huge institution and they have gained an immense popularity in Iraq because they are viewed as heroes, as the only ones. But after the fall of Mosul, the fall of Baghdad into the hands of Daesh, they are the ones who protected the belt of Baghdad, i.e. those small villages and towns who had a mixed Sunni and Shiite population, they were quite effective in stopping Daesh from reaching this belt around Baghdad. We can't reverse this. Most of their leaders are now preparing themselves to win the elections, the forthcoming election, provincial and legislative elections that are due to, to happen in 2018. And some of the militia leaders are already MPs in Baghdad. So again, the line between, you know, Militias, state apparatus uh, has lost any relevance in today's Iraq. But to be sure, apart from the fact that they have been uh, fighting Daesh, the ISIS forces, these popular mobilization forces, the Shia militia, have been also involved in extrajudicial killings and abuse and theft or destruction of property in areas where they actually managed to push ISIS out. Right, absolutely, yes. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have documented some of the um, crimes committed by the, the militias. What Basically, the logic behind their crimes is some kind of sectarian cleansing. They have done this in the governorate of Diala, which shares the frontier with Iran. This governorate was historically a Sunni government, mainly a Sunni government, although it has a sizable Shiite population. What has been done since 2014 in this government basically amounts to some kind of cleansing. 
They have expelled the Sunnis from their villages. Sometimes they have bulldozed the Sunni villages to punish them because they were suspected of having sympathy for ISIS. So this is almost done today. There are few Sunnis left in the government of Diala, and they have done this around Baghdad to secure the capital. They have expelled the Sunni inhabitants of the small villages around Baghdad. At the level of the central government and the, the mid-Euphrates governorates and southern governors, they are very keen on avoiding that Sunni refugees seeing the fighting reach Baghdad. They have put all sorts of administrative obstacles to prevent the Sunnis from entering Baghdad as refugees. So you have Iraqis, Iraqi Sunnis, who are prevented from entering the capital of their country. Most of these Shia militia fighters, the popular mobilization forces, they have strong ties to Iranian regime. And right. one can even describe them as being under the tutelage of Iranian regime, no? Right. General Qasem Soleimani has been seen on all the major battle fronts against ISIS, and he is adored by the leaders of those militias. Some of them were exiled in Iran in the 1980s. Some of them fought along Iranian troops against Saddam's army. Like the Badr forces. Yes, mainly Badr forces, but some other Iraqi exiles fought along with Iranian troops. They and some of them are fighting in Syria while they're being bankrolled by the Iranian regime. Some of them were, um, before Daesh entered Iraq, some of those militia fighters, Shiite militia fighters, were sent to Syria as early as 2012 and 2013. Some of them were sent to Syria to fight to protect the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad. And some of them were um, played a very important role in the several battles to reconquer Aleppo. So I... their allegiance goes to Iran... But this doesn't mean that it will remain so in the future. Not necessarily. I mean, it all depends on uh, on the way they are incorporated into uh, into the political process in Iraq. The way the Prime Minister Al Abadi, after his return from Washington, stressed the fact that all the militias have to to be under the control of the state. He has been uh, talking about incorporating them into the regular armed forces, whether police or army. But I can't see this happening mainly because the Iraqi central government doesn't have any more the economic. Sources to uh, to run a huge military. Over the last two three years, the central government has been under huge economic strain. Oil prices have collapsed, and the Iraqi government now relies on uh, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank for loans, and it's also counting on grants from Western governments and Arab governments to reconstruct the regions where uh, most of the fighting is going on until this day. I can't see the Iraqis security apparatus incorporating more than 100,000 fighters overnight, this will probably lead to more and more tensions, intra-Shiite tensions, surely in the future. But wasn't there a bill passed by the Iraqi parliament, I think it was in December, recognizing the Shia militia fighters, these popular mobilization forces, as a government entity? Well, you entity? have a, a gradual shift towards the institutionalization of those Shiite militia. Mm-hmm. It started in uh, 2014 when Prime Minister Al-Abadi created the higher committee for the Hajj al-Shabi, or the Popular Mobilization Unit, and it was an attempt to coordinate the fighting and the Shiite militias. Next 
step was when the Iraqi parliament passed a bill last November. And although the bill is very unclear, very vague about the final status of the popular mobilization units, but still it is said in this bill that the PMU forces are a recognized security structure and are part of the Iraqi state apparatus. So it was an attempt to institutionalize the Shabi or the Shiite militias. And at the same time, the bill specifies that the militias have to remain outside of the political process. They are not allowed to participate in uh, the same way the military are excluded from politics. The Shiite militias are supposed to remain outside of politics. But I can't see this happening because most of their leaders are already you know, preparing for the elections, for the forthcoming elections. And some of them are immensely popular in Iraq and they will surely win several seats in the next Iraqi parliament, which will allow them to control, in a way or another, the government. We need to talk about the Iraqi refugees. Nearly 400,000 people have fled their homes in and around Mosul as a result of the right. conflict. And half of these people actually fled since the campaign began to retake the rest of the city in February. Where do right. these internally displaced people end up? And what are the conditions? I know you visited some of these refugee camps when you were in Iraq just recently. Right. I mean, you have more than, I would say, between 25 and 30 refugee camps in Iraq. Some of them are in the KRG in Kurdistan. Some of them are scattered around Musa in the liberated areas. Some of the refugees, those who have some relatives and the other Sunni governors have fled to those areas. But you still have 4 million internally displaced persons in Iraq. I would say that almost 90% of them are Sunni Arabs. And these people have no perspective. They don't know when the fight will end. They don't know what they will find when they return to their homes. They don't know whether their home would have been completely destroyed or not. And basically, to allow their return to their um, areas of origin, you need some kind of economic reconstruction. You need the restoration of uh, the most basic public services in those areas. You need hospitals, you need schools, you need water, you need electricity. And the Iraqi government doesn't seem to be prepared to face this huge challenge of the return of the refugees to their areas of origin. And these 4 million Iraqis that you mentioned, this is just since 2013. That's just over the last four years, right? These are not the well, since 2003, Iraq has always had um, huge movements of population, had a sizable uh, population of uh, internally displaced persons. But of course, this dramatic increase in the size of the um, displaced persons has to do with the fall of most of the Sunni governors under the, the control of ISIS starting in end of 2013. And most of the areas have been liberated in some governors, for instance, in Tikrit, and, which is Salah al-Din governor, most of the civilians have returned to their homes. The level of destruction in this governance was less than uh, what happened in Al-Ambar, where um, almost 80% of the city of Ramadi was destroyed. In other areas, as I said, for instance, in Diala, they can't return anymore to their homes because of this uh, cleansing that has been conducted by the Shiite militias. So there will remain for years to come a sizable population of um, internally displaced persons in Iraq. Let's talk about something a little more positive here. In the spring of 2016, there were massive protests to force yeah. Prime Minister Abadi to carry out a major overhaul of his corrupt government. 
What happened right. to those protests? Have there been similar protests since then? As you said, the protest movement erupted in the summer 2015. It started in the southern part of Iraq, mainly in the city of Basra, which since 2003, the reconstruction in Basra has been very slow. And Basra resented Baghdad because Basra is, is an oil-rich governorate and uh, people in Basra feel, feel dispossessed of this oil wealth feel neglected by the central government. So this is where the protests erupted in the summer of 2015. And then slowly it gained momentum and it reached the capital, it reached Baghdad. The activists who were behind this movement referred to themselves as civil movement or civil protest or civilian protest, Tayyar al-Madani. What they wanted as their slogans at the beginning were against the Islamist parties, which are ruling the country since 2003. They were against corruption. They wanted more. They wanted an effective state, a state capable of delivering goods, of delivering public services to the entire population. They have been staging demonstrations in Baghdad in uh, the Liberation Squares. Sahat al-Tahrir in Baghdad. They have been doing this on Fridays regularly and continuously since uh, the summer of 2015. But I would say that they have lost momentum because the Iraqi public opinion wasn't very responsive to their movement. A lot of people in Iraq thought that the time wasn't ripe for um, protests, that Iraq was fighting a, a very a severe war against ISIS, and therefore there would be, after the, the fight is doing, after the war against ISIS comes to an end, there would be a time to discuss reforms, to discuss a major reshuffling of the political process that's been going on for years now. And again, the activists behind the protest movement belong to where academics, journalists, civil society activists, a lot of them had sympathy for um, the Communist Party, the Iraqi Communist Party, although the Iraqi Communist Party is very weak, but they belong to a sort of, you know, leftist vision of society or, or a leftist culture. Paradoxically, the moment this movement became stronger was because they were um, supported by one faction of the Shiite Islamist landscape. They were supported by Muqtada al-Sadr. The Sadrist bloc. So the Sadrist bloc joined the protest. There's some kind of alliance, sort of a weird alliance between those civilians, those who want a separation of uh, state and religion, and the Sadrist movement, which is um, an Islamist Shiite movement with a huge following in Iraq. Muqtada Sadr, Sadr is revered by his followers. He is considered as a god. So this has been going on. Of course, you know, the Sadrists are using the, this protest to pressure the government, to pressure al-Abadi, and also to pressure other Shiite forces. And because the Sadrists have been in some kind of rivalry with the, with the Hashd al-Shabi, with the other Shiite militia, although they them, themselves have a huge armed militia. Until now, they haven't been very uh, active in the fight against Daesh. They are keen on keeping a heavy presence in Baghdad, armed presence in the capital. They have done some of the fightings in, uh, in the towns and villages surrounding uh, Baghdad. They have done some of the fightings to secure Samarra, which is the shrine of Samarra. But apart from that, they are not taking part. They are not participating in the fight to liberate Mosul. And they are stressing their nationalist or patriotic stand. They have been trying to reach out to the Sunnis in Iraq. They have been holding joint meetings, conferences with the Sunni scholars in Baghdad, and they are very keen on um, appearing as um, sort of relatively independent from Iran and from the tutelage of Iran.
In February, thousands of people protested in Iraq demanding a complete overhaul of the Electoral Commission. And as before, force was used to prevent them from storming the Green Zone. And Prime Minister Abadi's reaction was similar to what he had done in Fallujah before. A week later, after this protest, he launched on February 19 a fresh offensive on the western Mosul. I suppose that way he could quell the protests more easily, as what you said. He's capitalizing on the sentiment that the country is under attack. Therefore, there is no time for political reform. Absolutely. And uh, nothing has been done since he took office in the summer of 2014. You know, there were pledges of reform, the idea of putting in place a technocratic government that is above ethnic and religious affiliation has been floated by um, Prime Minister Al-Abadi. He has been consulting with other Shiite forces, political forces, and Kurdish and Sunni political forces. But nothing has been done so far. There are still some portfolios in this government which hasn't been attributed. So the situation in Baghdad is is extremely tense. And you also have the former Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki, who is Sabotaging, I mean, any attempt to reform the system, any attempt which could be credited to Prime Minister Al-Abadi, although they both belong to the same political party. But Nouri al-Maliki is still a very strong actor, in, uh, political actor in Iraq. He is somehow behind some kind of, uh, you know, a shadow government or shadow state, and he is pulling the strings. He is allied to the Shiite militias. He enjoys, you know, very close relationships with their leaders, and he is preparing as well for the next elections. Of course, it is difficult to, um, uh, I can't see how he could become prime minister again, but he is hoping to control any new government in Iraq from behind the scenes through his influence and relationships with the militia. So they are forming some kind of alliance against Prime Minister Al-Abadi, who could only count on external support and some of the Sunni politicians, and as well Masoud al-Barzani, who supports him. But again, I mean, of course, Barzani's support to Prime Minister Al-Abadi has a price, of course, and this price will uh, mean that Prime Minister Al-Abadi has to compromise on the disputed internal territories or on the share of um, the Kurdish regional government of Iraqi oil. As a final question, I have to say, I find the conclusion to your article very impressive, and I want to quote that. You write in this Hobbesian dystopia where politics has vanished, Ordinary Iraqis do not fear terrorists as much as they are terrorized by everyone. They are utterly defenseless, forsaken by their purported leaders, preyed upon by their liberators, ignored by the rest of the world. Unquote. Explain what you mean by those words. Given this grim picture, do you see hope for Iraq? The problem is that, as we have discussed, there's no monopoly on violence in Iraq. You have a very weak central government. You have a facade of democratic institutions. You have elections. But you don't really have a government. You don't really have a functional administration. You don't have a government capable of providing the most basic public services and protecting people. Iraqis are left to their own devices, I mean, to survive, to make a living. A lot of them are trying to leave the country, are trying to have some kind of refugee status outside of Iraq. Most of the Iraqis have nothing to do with the militias, particularly in Baghdad, in the major urban centers of Iraq. They have nothing to do with the militias. 
Libertas. They haven't really benefited from the patronage of the big political parties. They just feel abandoned by everybody. They feel defenseless. So the only option that's left for them is either to be co-opted into this political process or through clientelistic relationships to try to make a living, to be appointed into the administration. But most of them prefer to leave the country. And, you know, there's an ongoing immigration of Iraqis who are not fleeing the fighting because they live in areas where not, I mean, where, where there's no fighting, but just because out of economic and desperation and because they feel that there's no hope or no perspective for their children. They don't want their children to grow into this chaotic and insecure, uh, violent environment. Most of the Iraqi youth have no other way to make a living apart from joining one of the armed militias that are very active. And, you know, the militias have also created their own economy of patronage, of kidnapping people. They have become a mafia. Lulowa al-Rashid is a researcher based in Paris and she has been conducting research on Iraq and the Gulf region for the past 20 years. With Peter Harling, she is the co-author of What the War on Terror Looks Like, Iraq in the Eye. She spoke with Shahram Aghamir. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan and thanks for listening.